Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Way Things Used to Be. Well folks, I've decided to take the summer off from producing any new podcasts. In the meantime, check out this best of episode that I've put together. It contains a lot of good clips from the last 29 episodes. Hope you enjoy and I'll talk to you in the fall. Okay folks, this is something new I've decided to try. This is called Guess the Sound. Are you ready? Here we go. Did you guess that? Let's hear that again. You give up? Okay, here's what it was. One of the challenges of recording this podcast is all kinds of distractions that I have. This particular incident was my little kitten upstairs knocking a brand new butter dish off of the counter. We may do this again in the future if something else interesting happens while I'm recording. I do have two cats and a dog who are often getting into trouble. Ah, does anybody remember the good old days of putting coins in a jude box, playing their favorite song? I do. Um, I mostly remember them uh, being in Pizza Hut restaurants, and they were big standalone units. Some of them you could actually see the record spinning inside while it played. Others were all enclosed, and you didn't really see anything. You just heard the music when you selected the song. My mother grew up um, in a little town in northern Michigan, um, and she was a restaurant waitress. And she remembers the guy coming in about once every couple of months and changing out all the records for new ones. And he would give her the old ones. She didn't even have to pay for them. So that's pretty much how she built up her record collection. She had lots of good stuff like the Everly Brothers and Elvis Presley and things of that nature. And these are all original records from that time period. So um, that's that was the way she built up her record collection. Didn't have to spend any money at all. Um, when I was about five years old or so, according to my parents, um, this story is coming from them, um, I kind of vaguely remember it, but my dad used to leave uh, coins as a tip on the table in restaurants uh, for the waitress. And I remember in one particular restaurant, they had a little jukebox thing on the table that you could put the coins in and select a song at your table rather than going to the big jukebox in the corner. Um, they said that I picked up the coins and started putting them in the jukebox and started pressing buttons to play a song. And people started laughing when they saw me doing it. I don't remember the laughter part of it, but I do remember, um, you know, watching other people put coins in and thinking, well, that's what they're for, isn't it? So I would put the coins in there and, um, and think I was doing the right thing. Later on, my parents explained it to me, um, so that was a lesson learned, I guess. Don't just pick up coins and put them in the jukebox. Um, I also remember selecting the wrong song in a jukebox multiple times and getting very frustrated because I was hitting the buttons that it told me to hit, but still the wrong song would come up. And after several failed attempts and wasted coins, I realized I was selecting the song uh, numbers from the wrong one. They were next to the one that I wanted, but they were in the wrong spot. So I was selecting the wrong song every single time. Again, there was another lesson learned. Okay, so the searing pain of a rusty nail going through the bottom of your foot is probably not a memory that most people are fond of. Um, I remember only doing this one time. Um, I was very young. I lived in Bismarck, North Dakota. And in our neighborhood, we had an alley that went between the rows of houses where the trash trucks picked up all the garbage for the neighborhood. Um, naturally, at that age, most kids ran around on their bare feet like I did. 
Unfortunately, the alley was not a good place to play because that's where I pierced my foot on the rusty nail. Of course, it didn't feel good. In fact, it really, really hurt. Fortunately, the nail came right out and I was able to hobble back to the house where my mom looked at it, cleaned it with some peroxide, put a big bandage on it and told me to go play. So on my way, I went. No worries about infections or tetanus, nothing like that. And at the age of 53 now, um, I survived it without any ill adverse effects. So, you know, um, another story about my son. Uh, this happened about 10 or 11 years ago. He stepped on a rusty thumbtack while he was running around in his bare feet at a local park with some of his friends. So um, one of the parents that was there happened to be a paramedic and was quite concerned that it might have broken off on my son's foot and that he should go to the emergency room and have it x-rayed just to make sure there wasn't anything stuck in there that could cause a bad infection. Well, my wife was concerned now that a paramedic said that, so she took him to the emergency room. They x-rayed it, found out that there was nothing stuck in there, and we got stuck with a big fat emergency room bill. So things have certainly changed since the days that I stepped on a rusty nail and mom bandaged me up and sent me on my way. Driving a stick shift car is a rare experience, especially when kids are taking driver's ed. Some of them have never even heard of a stick shift. You just put your foot on the brake pedal and put the car in drive. With a stick shift, you had to use both hands and both feet, one hand on the wheel at all times and the other on the shift lever or stick, as they called it. One foot for the brake pedal and accelerator and the other for the clutch. Sounds kind of complicated, but once you learn it, it's not that bad. I remember learning to drive a stick shift car for the first time. My parents had a Chevy station wagon with a three-speed stick and a very wimpy six-cylinder engine. I was so nervous that my foot on the clutch was shaking. Of course, I stalled out the engine several times, but I eventually got the hang of it. I also smoked the clutch a few times, as made evident by the burning smell and the jerky starts and stops. Once you've learned to drive a stick, you never forget how. At least that was the case where I was concerned. Later on, I had had a small pickup truck with a stick shift and driven various other vehicles. They all worked basically the same. I'm sure there's still a lot of them out on the roads today, but I can see the day coming when the jerky starts and stops and stalled engines and smoking clutches are going to come to an end. My brother Eric had a 77 Chevy Silverado with a manual shift lever on the steering column. I drove it a couple of times, but it wasn't easy. Eric later had it converted to a floor stick, which made it much easier to drive. On a comical note, I've also seen some video clips of modern-day car thieves who get so frustrated with a stick-shift car that they finally just give up and flee the scene. It is quite hilarious to watch that. I thought I had the coolest dad in town when he got his new digital watch. This was back in the 1970s. The watch was kind of a gold color with a dark face. The band had a clasp that tightened to his wrist and sometimes pinched him. When you push the button on the side, the digital numbers would light up magically in bright red showing the time. <laughs> wow, was that ever cool. Well, even better, when you hit the button again, it would show the date. And another push of the button displayed the ticking seconds. This was amazing stuff when you were only nine years old. He often would take it off of his wrist during church and let us kids play with it just to keep us content during the service. 
I did a little research on these watches, and there were several brands out there. There were Timex, there was Armatron, there was National Semiconductor. There were there were just different kinds, different shapes, different sizes. I'm not sure what kind my dad had, but it was rather unique and uh, kind of special to be one of the only kids around whose dad had a digital watch. That was pretty amazing stuff. And what's interesting now is that the trend is these smart watches that look very similar to the uh, old vintage digital watches from the 70s. Funny how we kind of loop back to the way things used to be. <laughs> Interesting. That's what this podcast is all about. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, here's an added bonus. I was looking on YouTube and I found some vintage television commercials from the 70s. The first one you're going to hear is for Stucky's Restaurant. And the final one is going to be for Howard Johnson's Restaurant. So enjoy these clips. It's Happy Highways from Stuckey's. Happy Highways is a brand new travel game with plenty of excitement. Wow! Go to Moon Mountain. Advance to Camp Gitchy Gooch. Detour. Lose a turn. Stop at Stuckey's for super shakes, delicious hamburgers, and yummy candy. Happy Highways is free with purchase of 10 gallons of gasoline or more at all participating Stuckey's stores. Stuckey's is fun! A luscious licking lolly. Hot dogs. And hamburgers. And fried clams to eat. Black raspberry ice cream. And peppermint stick. And pistachio nut. And fudge ripple. And mocha chip. And 23 more flavors. And all your friends will be there. And your own gooey birthday cake with candles to blow out. And you get the cake and your whole meal for free when you have your birthday party at Howard Johnson's. Next time you're in Howard Johnson's, get mom or dad to pick up a registration blank and sign you up for the Hojo Birthday Club. Imagine your own birthday party under the orange roof. You'll see why being a kid is more fun at Howard Johnson's. Many years ago, when someone invited you over to watch movies on the big screen, they were referring to Grandpa's Home Movies. Ooh. They were shown on a large roll-up screen through a noisy projector that clicked away the frames on reels of film. You'd watch things like Baby's First Steps or Uncle Phineas waxing his Plymouth sedan, kids acting goofy in front of the camera, and Junior blowing the candles out on his birthday cake. To make it even more fun, out came the slide projector and carousels of slides of Cousin Mortimer's class trip to Niagara Falls in 1953. Aunt Gertrude would make a big batch of popcorn and made sure everybody had some before the lights were turned down for the big show. Sadly, all of this would change with the dawn of the VCR. We would shelve the movie projector and its reels of film and replace them with a machine that sat on top of a console TV set. Instead of watching flickering images of Billy and Sally opening Christmas presents, we were laughing at reruns of Gomer Pyle that were recorded on tape the night before. We were obsessed with television already, but even more so now that we had the ability to tape a program and play it back whenever we liked. Home video cameras, or camcorders as we call them now, would soon come into play. The difference between them and Grandpa's film camera was the ability to erase and re-record if that special moment didn't quite work out. It kind of makes the special moments not so special anymore. There would soon be a format war between VHS and Beta, 
VHS tapes were larger than beta and could hold more programming, up to six hours. Beta tapes were slightly smaller and tended to have better picture quality. The two formats were not compatible with each other at all. My good friend Steve had a VHS and I had beta. We couldn't share tapes, so we often were hooking our machines together and copying them. By this time, everybody and their brother was making blank video cassettes. There were good ones, and there were really cheaply made ones. If the picture quality didn't stink, the tape itself did, as made evident by the crinkling and crunching noise coming from the machine as it tore up a tape. Beta would finally lose the format war, and VHS would dominate the market and be the leading home video format for years until DVDs came on the scene. My first experience with a VCR was somewhere around 1979 or 1980. One of the kids on our block had the only known VCR in the entire neighborhood. I was fascinated how it worked like a tape recorder with its big click buttons. One of the tapes that this kid had for his VCR could have put his parents behind bars. It was a bootleg copy of the movie Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. He knew someone who snuck a bulky video camera into the projection booth of a movie theater and recorded it on beta tape. He even let me make a cassette recording of it, so you could say that I had a bootleg copy of a bootleg copy. I also fiddled with the buttons on the VCR when nobody was watching and I accidentally erased part of the soundtrack from the bootleg tape. Of course I didn't say anything. It was a bootleg tape and it probably should have been completely erased anyway. Nowadays anyone can sneak a smartphone into a movie theater and record it. And you don't have to go very far to find bootleg sites on the internet and download illegal copies of the latest theatrical releases. Coming full circle, those old dusty films of grandpa's are being transferred to tapes, DVDs, and digital thumb drives. Now you have services that'll take your old videotapes and digitize them to preserve their content. So what do you do with a box of old videotapes after they've been preserved on DVD? You guessed it, they get dumpstered. You can't even give them away because nobody wants them, and the thrift stores are overrun with them. As I'm recording this podcast, you can still buy a VCR in places like Target or Walmart, but they're very cheaply made. They're nothing like the machines that were made back in the 80s and 90s. And it's getting harder and harder to find blank video cassettes in a retail store. Don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to talk to my good friend Steve Wright about our days of playing with VCRs. If you were to go to a modern playground today with your kids or grandkids, you'd probably see a well-built play structure made out of wood or maybe some wood composite of some sort, complete with handrails and all sorts of the latest safety features. You might see a rock climbing wall or even a rope ladder. You might even find some benches where the parents and the grandparents can sit while the little ones play. And everything is surrounded by a thick layer of soft wood chips. No skinned elbows or knees with that kind of protection. I remember the old metal playground equipment. There was the merry-go-round, or as I like to call it, the merry-go-barf. Kids would climb aboard and hold on for dear life while someone spun it around and around as fast as they could. If you were lucky, you got a spot in the center while all of your friends who sat on the outer edges were flung off onto the ground, chucking their macaroni and cheese and hot dog slices. Of course, after the merry-go-round finally finished spinning around, getting off of it was another story. You were fortunate if you could stand your feet after going through that kind of astronaut training. Then there was the tall metal slide that caused third-degree burns when you were in shorts. There was no mistaking the screech of skin and friction as you slowly plummeted down to the bottom. Landing in the cool dirt was a relief after having the backs of your legs set on fire like a torch. 
The slides that they make today are made out of plastic, and the worst injury you're going to get from that is maybe a 10,000 volt static electricity shock and your hair standing up on end. And who remembers the cast iron animals that were mounted to a coil spring? You rocked backwards and forwards, almost touching the ground. I don't think we realized how dangerous those contraptions were, especially if one were to break its bolts that anchored it to the ground, or if a spring snapped. There was also that dome-shaped ladder thing. I'm not even sure what it was called. It was easy enough to climb up, but once you were at the top, you had to back down or you'd fall forward. Either that or you would fall through to the ground. And that tall rocket ship that seemed to reach to the clouds. It had a ladder in the middle that went all the way to the top. And then there was the infamous teeter-totter. What was more fun than bouncing up and down on one of those? Jumping off the other end and watching your friend plummet to the ground like a sack of rocks. We didn't think much about hurting each other back then. We just brushed it off and had a good laugh. And finally, who can forget the swing set? Some of these things were tall and you could really catch some air if you got a good momentum going. I remember pretending to be the six million dollar man and jumping off the swing with all of my bionic strength, only to realize I wasn't that at all when I felt the burning pain in my ankles from the impact on the ground. It felt more like Evil Knievel crashing on a not so successful jump with his motorcycle. All of these things would be considered unsafe by today's helmet-wearing, bubble-wrapped society. But they bring back some of my fondest memories of my childhood. I wrote a book a few years ago called Night Shift, My Adventures as a Convenience Store Clerk. It's available for download for the Amazon Kindle. In the book, I tell about my first car. I bought my first car after I graduated high school. It was a 1969 Pontiac Catalina, a.k.a. the Blue Bomb. Now, before I go any further, let's rewind back to 1969. It had a 400 two-barrel V8 engine with 264 horsepower, three-speed hydromatic transmission, measured a whopping 217 inches long and 79.8 inches wide. Wow! It could top 122 miles an hour and did a 17-second quarter mile. The list price ran right around $9,300 at the Pontiac dealership. Pretty impressive. Now, fast forward to 1985. I only paid $350 for my Catalina. It didn't come from a dealership. It came out of someone's overgrown weed-infested backyard. It had a V8 engine in it all right, but it sputtered a lot, and I doubt that it had 265 horsepower in the condition it was in. And at that time, I didn't even know what a quarter mile was. When I arrived at the guy's house to look it over and possibly buy it, he already had it in the driveway running. That should have been a clue to me right there that something wasn't right with it. When I drove it home, the radiator boiled over, and when I pulled into the gas station to fill it up, the battery died. The guys at the station tried to be helpful by putting water in the battery, but I believe it was destined for the battery graveyard. I ended up replacing it with a little financial help from my parents. For a car that was only 16 years old at the time, it sure had been through the ringer. The Catalina was quite colorful with at least four shades of blue primer paint and a little red and white mixed in. The only thing original on the car were the four hubcaps. It had four different tires with various tread quality and none of them matched. The bench seat in the front was cloth covered and did not match the rest of the interior of the car. Although the car was a Catalina, the dashboard assembly came out of a Bonneville. I was also proud of the fact that I installed my own car stereo system. 
It was a Sparkomatic AM-FM cassette deck that hooked to a second car battery that was on the floor of the passenger side. I wasn't sure how to wire into the car's ancient electrical system. It was a little awkward for a passenger, but sacrifices needed to be made to have a cool sound system, complete with budget speakers from Radio Shack. The big engine under the hood slurped up the gas, and it often backfired and missed because it needed new plugs and points. The exhaust system consisted of pieces of flex pipe and a muffler held on with a coat hanger. I had to replace the flex pipe about every six weeks because it would rust and start making noise again. I also learned very quickly how to become a mechanic because I had to change the starter out six different times before I finally got one that worked properly. And the brakes had a feature I wasn't aware of. It was this really cool red light that came on every time I hit the brake pedal. Little did I know that this was a warning that something was really wrong with the brakes because one day they went completely out while I was driving down a busy street. I was able to make my way into an empty train yard where the car came to a transmission grinding halt just shy of a ditch. Of course, I couldn't afford a better car with the low wages I was making working nights at a convenience store. After about a year, I sold the car to a friend for $149.52 because he didn't have the $150 that I was asking for it. Despite all of the issues I had with the car, it was very solidly built. The horn worked and all the windows rolled up and down. What more could anyone ask for in a first car? Perhaps antifreeze and a radiator? I simply filled it with water from the garden hose. Whew, thank God it didn't freeze up that winter. More recently, I've had vivid dreams about this car. In those dreams, I would walk to my neighbor's house where I parked it and got in and drove it. Mrs. Brown was an elderly woman who lived a couple doors down from us. She was grateful that I parked my car in her driveway because it always looked like someone was at home. My first car certainly had a huge impact on my life. I've even gone so far as to look on eBay just to see if I could find one to see how much it would sell for. I think I'll stick with the fond memories. A fully restored one could cost more than the original list price in 1969. The front end of the Catalina resembled a Pontiac GTO, so I bought a model kit of a 1969 GTO and painted it to look like my Catalina. I even used photographs to make it more accurate. I even had a picture of my old license plate from one of those photographs that I cut out and stuck on the plastic bumper. I wish I knew what happened to that model because I really worked hard to make it resemble my old car. And finally, thanks to that crazy cobbled exhaust system, I received my first ticket ever when it fell apart after I hit a pothole. I explained to the officer that it had just happened in a grocery store parking lot, but he didn't buy it and I got the ticket. Do you remember that sound? It sure brings back some wonderful memories of my youth. The ice cream truck was always a welcome thing on a hot summer day. I remember meeting the truck out on the street and how the driver had to get out and open the freezer doors on the side to get the yummy treats that I selected. My favorite was push-ups, either the vanilla with fudge or the orange sherbet. When I finished eating that delicious ice cream, I had a stick and a plastic push plate. I collected them and put them together to make wheels with an axle. I didn't do much with it after that, but it was kind of fun. And then they eventually wound up in a trash anyway when my mom got tired of stepping on them. I also remember Twin Pops, chocolate-dipped ice cream bars, and ice cream sandwiches. Man, I'm getting hungry just talking about this. One year I received money for Christmas and I could hardly wait to buy ice cream with it. 
It took a long time for that winter to go by, but as soon as that ice cream truck started coming around, I started buying ice cream. I was feeling pretty generous having all that money, so I decided to buy treats for all the kids in the neighborhood. Needless to say, that money went fast. Now let's fast forward to the 1980s. After my dad retired from his job with the federal government, he wanted to do something to supplement his income. At that time, me and my two brothers were still in high school, and it was kind of difficult to raise a family on his retirement income. So dad decided to buy an ice cream truck, and he made his daily rounds in the surrounding neighborhoods. He was very dedicated to his work, and this was made evident by the fact that he dressed in a uniform shirt and had a custom-made hat. That's something you just don't see anymore. These days, a majority of the people driving those trucks have long hair, nose piercings, and tattoos all over their forearms. Okay, not all of them, but a lot of them, and they might be selling more than just ice cream out of the back of that truck. Dad was known to the neighborhood kids as Captain Blizzard. His truck was a very old 1967 Ford with a wimpy straight-six engine and Chevrolet hubcaps. It was in pretty rough shape when he bought it, but he put a lot of time and effort into it. It even had bells on the front and a music box that was amplified through a loudspeaker. It played the song Little Brown Jug, not Ring Around the Rosie or the ABC song. It was interesting how a song about moonshine would draw the little kitties and their money. The music box was eventually silenced due to a noise ordinance the city issued. Dad was also asked to stop selling near neighborhood high schools because of the excessive trash that was left behind, even though he took the time to pick it up and put it in the garbage every afternoon. Because of the age of the truck, it was difficult for Dad to find anybody to work on it. Dad did attempt some of the repairs himself. Some were successful and some not so successful, like the smoking alternator. Despite the truck's age, Dad cleaned it up and had it professionally painted. He even had his own custom logos painted on the side. I think he took it to Earl Scheib, the man who could paint any car for $99.95. At least that's what the commercials on television claim. If you don't believe me, look it up on YouTube. The truck had no power steering or power brakes and was very difficult to control on the road. I did drive it a couple of times, just short distances, but it was like driving a lumber wagon being pulled by a team of horses. I helped Dad out on occasions collecting sticky coins from kids who were anxious for their frozen treats. Some of the kids were so young they couldn't even count their money. They would just slap the coins down on the stainless steel counter for Dad to count. He was very patient with them and always gave them back any extra money. I sometimes think he even let them get away with not paying enough. That's just the kind of man my dad was and still is. Some of the treats that he sold were choco tacos and ice cream sandwiches, hard candies. He even had cans of soda pop that he kept on ice, courtesy of the local 7-Eleven store where he bought buckets of ice for a dollar. This might sound like it was easy work, but it really wasn't. To start with, the truck had no air conditioning, just a small fan near the driver's seat. There was nothing worse than sweating in a hot box on wheels. Cracked fingers and knuckles were a result of repeatedly reaching into sub-zero freezers. Dad did well with the truck for nearly 10 years. The money he made every summer helped to finance vacations to Europe with my mom. He finally decided to settle into retirement by hanging up his Captain Blizzard hat and selling the truck. Many years later, I saw what I thought was Dad's truck, so I stopped the guy driving it and decided to talk to him. And while I was talking to him, I looked around, and sure enough, it was Dad's truck. There were some telltale signs that only my dad would have made with that truck. It was nice to see it still in service. Dad had a lot of interesting encounters with kids. One time while he was conducting business, 
Another kid reached around behind him, grabbed a handful of suckers out of the display box, and ran off. When my dad yelled at him to stop, he pulled down his pants and gave him the full moon. As far as I know, that was the only time he ever got ripped off. So I didn't work a whole lot on the ice cream truck with my dad, but it was an interesting experience to say the least. I don't know how he did it for 10 years, but he sure did. And he made a positive impact on the neighborhood kids. Hey folks, just a side note, uh, the music box that you heard at the beginning of this podcast is the actual music box out of my dad's ice cream truck. That's the only thing that we saved from it before he sold it. That's the sound of a 1950s-era royal typewriter. For a good chunk of the 19th century and most of the 20th century, this was how we wrote a book, or a letter, or just took notes. You press the buttons in rapid succession, which caused little hammers with letters on the ends of them to strike an ink ribbon, which in turn impressed letters and numbers onto a sheet of paper. When you got to the end of the row, a bell would ding, signaling that you needed to hit the carriage return to start another line. When you messed up, you either backed up a space and typed the correct letter over the wrong one, or you ripped out the entire sheet and started over fresh. When the ink ribbon ran out, most machines had a reverse function that would run the ink ribbon the other way so you could keep on typing. On occasion, it would get jammed up and you didn't realize it until you typed several characters that were faded. Sometimes, too, you could hit the keys too fast and the hammers would jam up. That's when you had to tap them with your fingers to get them to fall back into place. The keyboard on a manual typewriter is set up very similar to the keyboard on a computer or a smartphone. The huge difference, however, is the amount of pressure required to print the characters on paper. A really good typist had a rhythm and it was routine. An amateur, like myself, however, would have painfully sore fingers from hitting the keys too hard. My dad had an old royal typewriter, similar to the one that you heard earlier. It was in a suitcase-like carrier. I spent many hours coming up with stories that were only meant for me to see. I had quite an imagination, but having the typewriter enabled me to write. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken the time to write by hand. I even made little books out of some of the stories I typed. I would take a spiral notebook and carefully remove the wire so I could type on the pages. When they were filled up, I would replace the wire very carefully. It was fun, and I still have a few of them floating around in some storage boxes. Electric typewriters made typing so much easier because you didn't have to hit the keys so hard. On some of the nicer machines, the hammers were replaced with a ball that had all of the characters on it. You could even change that ball for different type fonts. However, it was still a manual typewriter. The real change didn't come until the age of word processors. These were like a computer with a monitor so you could see what you were typing. You could make changes to your fonts and different type styles and you could even save the work on a floppy disk to be worked on later. When you were ready to print on paper, you just inserted a sheet into the carriage and hit the print button. The entire page would print in a matter of seconds. Flawless because you made all the corrections ahead of time. Using a manual typewriter was an art form. It took skill and talent to produce a perfect page. It was fun to use one and unlock my imagination. 
My son James owns the typewriter that you heard at the beginning of this segment. It is a monster weighing over 20 pounds. Once in a while I can hear a thunking noise somewhere in the house. It's him writing on his typewriter. I'm so pleased to see that it fascinates him as much as it did when I was his age. Sticking a fork in an electric socket. Sounds kind of stupid, doesn't it? But when you're two years old, curiosity takes over where common sense hasn't quite developed yet. I said fork, but for me it was a spatula. I didn't stick it into the electric socket. I stuck it between the prongs of a plug that was in the socket. It was in the kitchen of our house in Bismarck. I picked up a metal spatula that was lying around and wandered under the dining table where there was an outlet with a wall clock plugged into it. I remember the flash and being startled. However, I don't remember crying. I do remember my mother pulling me away from the situation rather quickly and seeing the hole that was burned into the spatula. Wowie zowie! I survived it and was sent off to play with my blocks or something. No trip to the hospital for me. I had another encounter with electricity a few years later when I made my very own extension cord. It consisted of a lamp cord and a couple of clip-on ends that you would buy at the hardware store. One end had a plug and the other one had a socket that you plugged things into. It actually worked and I was so excited I couldn't wait to show my mom. I wanted her to see how I could plug it in and make it work, so before she came down to my room, I grabbed the cord and yanked on it. Unfortunately, the plug stayed in the outlet and the cord came out. There was a loud pop and a flash. <laughs> Oops, there went another glass fuse. I do remember crying about that incident. In fact, I was so traumatized by it, I refused to touch another electrical cord for several years. Finally, my mom grabbed my hand, put it on a cord, and made me plug and unplug it several times, just to show me that it wouldn't hurt. I've had other zaps and jolts of electricity over the years, like touching the picture tube of a television set with the back off. Not a good idea. I wound up sitting in the middle of the floor shaking my head like, what happened? Another time, I took a pair of wire cutters and clipped a cord that I thought had no electricity because the electric meter said zero, but when I clipped it, it snapped and popped in my hand. Come to find out, the electrical tester was bad. And I've had other little incidences like that as well. I am glad to inform you that I am alive and well today without any issues related to the extra amps that have coursed through my body over the years. Okay, it's time for another round of Name That Sound. Here we go. Did you get that? Let's listen to it again. How about one more time? Alright, if you give up, here's what it was. I already told you before that I've got cats and I've got animals in the house that are always causing me issues when I'm recording the podcast. This time around, it was the same cat almost knocked an entire box of mason jars onto the floor in my workshop. It was a close call, but they fared better than the butter dish from last time. This is Evil Knievel and the Evil Knievel shock-absorbing stunt cycle. You can make him do wheelies, backstands, even mid-air somersaults. And for that big jump, here's Evil up and over that four-foot ditch. Evil Knievel, sold separately or with the Evil Knievel Stunt Cycle from Ideal. 
Man, oh man, they just don't make toys like that anymore. Evil Knievel and his shock-absorbing stunt cycle. That thing could jump and stay on two wheels almost every time. It came complete with a whining crank to launch it into its next death-defying jump. I was inspired to write this segment by a picture my cousin Kurt Williams sent to me on Facebook Messenger. In this vintage picture from Christmas of 1973, it shows Kurt with his Evil Knievel stunt bike set, complete with a ramp, motorcycle, Evil Knievel action figure, scramble van, and stunt cycle launcher. The commercials on TV show kids jumping the cycle in dirt and racing over rocks and debris. Kurt, however, kept his inside because he had a nice open basement to make Evil Knievel history, and he didn't want to get it dirty. Which was probably a good thing, because the ones that survived our childhood are worth a small fortune, may say to the tune of $300 and up. <clears throat> memories are so much cheaper. Speaking of memories, I had one of those Evil Knievel stunt cycles, and I remember what happened to it. I cranked it so many times that I eventually stripped the gears in the launcher. That was a sad day indeed. The fun in action didn't stop with the Evil Knievel stunt cycle. Kids were inspired, or should I say influenced, by this daredevil to do their own ramp jumping stunts on their bicycles. Kurt tells me that he even broke his arm on his bike shortly after seeing Evil Knievel in person. Not too bad considering Knievel broke almost every major bone in his body multiple times throughout his career. As for me, I've never had a broken bone in my entire life, and I plan to keep it that way. Well, I did break one of my toes one time when I kicked the corner leg of a couch, but I don't count that. And lastly, we can't forget the Canyon Sky Cycle. It was the stunt cycle modified to look like the ill-fated rocket that plummeted into the bottom of the Snake River Canyon. This toy jumped ramps and set speed records just like the stunt cycle, but it was a bit more successful than the real one. There's also great videos on YouTube if you need more Evil Knievel in your life. And, if you're ever in the Topeka, Kansas area, check out the Evil Knievel Museum. They have a lot of bikes, vehicles, and interactive displays, and the crushed carcass of the Canyon Sky Cycle. My cousin Kurt Williams is a big Evil Knievel fan, and I want to thank him for sharing his memories of Evil Knievel with me on this podcast. Thanks a lot, Kurt. When I was growing up, we had a rather large piece of furniture which was front and center in the living room. No, it wasn't a table or a sofa. Believe it or not, it was a 1961 Magnavox console television set. Whew, that's a mouthful. There was always something magical about watching Saturday morning cartoons in glorious black and white while eating a bowl of cereal. Growing up, we never watched anything in color unless it was at somebody else's house. And we didn't know what a remote control was back then. To change the channel, you actually had to get up off of your duff and turn the dial. And in this case, it was inside of a slide panel on top of the TV. This was around 1970, so the set was already used and had nine years of service in somebody else's home. But this was back in a time when you kept a television set for 20 years or even longer. The cabinet of the set was all wood and had elaborate accents and corners, and it was a solid piece of furniture. It housed a rather round 17-inch picture tube in the middle, which was in beautiful black and white. Or at least it was beautiful when the set was working properly. There was also a magic eye on the lower left-hand corner that adjusted the brightness of the screen according to the light in the room. I always thought it was an eye that was looking at me. On the top, there were side panels which revealed the controls for the volume, channel selector, and radio and record player. As far as the sound goes, this thing was decked out. 
It had at least eight speakers. The biggest were 15-inch side-firing woofers. The Jackson 5 never sounded better than when I would spin their record on the four-speed Micromatic record player with Diamond Stylus. I would put the record on the center spindle and flip the start switch. This caused the tone arm to tap the side of the record so that when it dropped, it knew where to place the stylus according to the size of the record. Kind of complicated, but it was pretty neat to watch. That console was a tank that just kept on going well into the 1980s when it finally gave up the ghost. The beautiful black and white kind of faded into a foggy gray, which it was kind of hard to see without the lights being turned off in the room. The Micromatic turntable had quit working many years before, and the radio couldn't pick up any more stations. So around 1982, my parents finally broke down and bought our first color TV set. The Magnavox console graduated to the basement. One huge thing about these big console TV sets that sets them apart from the disposable flat-screen TVs you see today was the fact that when it broke down, you fixed it. You either replaced the tube or you called a serviceman to come out to your home. I remember somebody coming out to our house and replacing the picture tube. It was quite an affair as the living room floor was scattered with tubes, clamps, testing equipment, and wires galore while the repairman did his work, sometimes half climbing into the cabinet to get to what he needed to. There were also times when I would go with my dad to the drugstore to use the tube tester to find out which one was bad. Radio Shack even had tube testers into the 1980s. I remember one time when I was a bit older, I took the back off of the console TV and used a couple of alligator clips to hook an external speaker up to it. I ran the wire to my bedroom. It was neat to listen to the television set through my own private speaker on the other side of the house. Unfortunately, the TV had to be turned up quite loud in order for the speaker to work. That didn't last very long as my mom told me to pick up my wires. So I disconnected it and that was that. So these console sets have been replaced by modern flat-screen sets that boast 1080 high-def or 4K digital picture quality. Yes, I enjoy high-def TV. I mean, who wouldn't? I've never seen the old classic shows look more lifelike. But then back in the days of tube televisions and black and white, that was the best you could get, and that's the way I remember those shows. After the break, we're going to talk about this cool thing called a rotary roof antenna. That was back before the days of cable. Stay tuned. My first money-earning adventure was delivering newspapers. I had a paper route in an apartment complex not far from my house, so it was easy enough. I started at one end of a cluster of buildings and finished at the other end, dropping off about 40 newspapers on doorsteps. To get the newspapers, I stopped at what was called a substation. Actually, it was just somebody's garage with all the newspapers. The papers were already counted and stacked, so all I had to do was pick them up and deliver them. Sometimes they were as thin as a comic book, but on Sundays, look out. They were bigger than a Manhattan phone book. They also had to be assembled with ads before being placed in my shoulder bags so they could be delivered. Sometimes it would take more than one trip because they were so thick and heavy to carry all at once. The bag that I carried them in had a padded shoulder strap, but it pulled me down pretty bad when it was loaded. It felt more like a nylon rope pulling on my shoulders all the way down to my knees. There were days when the papers were small, and it allowed room in my bag for my super cool cassette boombox. It cranked out tunes from Billy Squire and Ario Speedwagon, 38 Special, and other artists from the early 80s. Portable Walkman tape players were around, but they were way too expensive for somebody with my limited income. 
On really snowy days, my dad would take me in the old trusty 73 Volkswagen van. He would drop me off at the start of the route and pick me up at the other end. It was a nice relief to have a ride on days like that. When it came time to collect the money for the weekly subscriptions, I had to go door to door and ask for payment. This typically happened on Saturdays or Sundays, and my weekend was pretty burnt up because of my obligation to the newspaper route. I had a little black flip book with tabs in it that I would tear off and give to the customer as a receipt. I then took the money that I collected and paid for the week's newspapers. Whatever was left over was what I earned. It wasn't much, but it bought soda pop and put coins in the games at the local arcade. Most of my customers were good about paying, but others were very difficult. Some would ask me to come back another time, and others didn't answer at all when I knocked on their door. Sometimes the music coming from an apartment was so loud that they couldn't hear me knocking on the door anyway. This was frustrating, especially when customers went several weeks without paying. Then I had to cancel their papers until they made good on their back payment. Delivering newspapers wasn't really my cup of tea, and after about a year I gave it up, mostly because I didn't make much from all the effort I put into it. In fact, the total amount of money I made in that year didn't even qualify for paying taxes. But then, what 16-year-old cares about income taxes, right? A lot of things have changed since going door-to-door -door delivering newspapers. Nowadays, you don't typically see a paper boy, so to speak. You see somebody in a car driving house to house, putting them in a little newspaper mailbox. They don't even get out of the car. One time about five or six years ago, my wife and I decided to do what's called a community paper route. Anybody who knows what community papers are, they're just a kind of a waste of paper. They're just a weekly paper that comes out that's free, and it usually goes to anybody who subscribes to the regular newspaper. So my wife and I and our two children, James and Rebecca, we decided to hop in the van, load up on these community newspapers, and try to make a little extra money. Well, in one day, it took us over four hours to deliver these newspapers, all to the tune of 35 bucks. What a waste of time. We decided not to do that again. If you were to ask a young person today what a phone is, they would probably pull it out of their pocket and take a selfie. Yes, while this is indeed a phone, it's not the first thing that comes to my mind. I grew up with a rotary dial telephone. Yes, I said telephone. Over time, it's been shortened to just phone. To use it, you had to know the number of the person you were calling. There was no list of contacts to scroll through unless you had a phone book on the table next to it. Typically, a telephone was on a table next to a couch or perhaps on a wall in a kitchen. Putting your finger in the hole of a number on the dial and turning it was the only way to make it work. Unlike today, you don't have bars showing signal strength or reception. The telephone was hooked to a cord that plugged into the wall. When you picked up the receiver, which was also attached by a cord, there was a dial tone to tell you that it was okay to make a call. There was virtually no such thing as a dropped call because the connection traveled through wires, not cell towers or satellites. There was also something called a busy signal. That meant the person you were trying to call was already talking to someone else. You didn't have the option to leave a voice message. You had to try calling them back later. Something that's kind of unheard of now, because when you leave a voice message, you expect that person to call you back after they've heard it. Speaking of voicemail, 
We used to have an answering machine attached to the phone line. The one I remember had two cassette tapes in it. One had a recorded greeting asking you to leave a message, and the other one was the one that recorded the messages that you received. It was always exciting to come home and see a blinking red light on the machine which indicated that somebody had left a message. It also worked as a good excuse to get out of a long conversation with someone. Oh, uh, I have to get home and check my answering machine. I'm expecting an important call. Today's smartphones work basically the same as the old rotary dial telephones and answering machines. However, there was a bit of a refreshing disconnect back in those days. You weren't always connected by having a device in your pocket. And you certainly didn't take selfies with a telephone. People would have thought you were nuts. I also find it ironic that some people take the time to put a ringtone on their smartphone that sounds like an old rotary dial telephone. One last thing. I have an Android phone and my kids have iPhones. They both work pretty much the same way, but I fail to understand why Apple calls their device an iPhone when you don't put it to your eye. It goes up to your ear like all the other phones. Okay, so I have a YouTube channel where I have created some spoof videos and some funny little video clips, usually with my family. So I made what I call a spoof commercial. What it is, is it's a ripoff of those subscription music services that you used to see back in the 70s and 80s. I can't play the video, but you can certainly hear the audio, and hopefully it'll, it'll snap some memories of some of those commercials we used to listen to on the radio and used to see on TV. So take a listen. Are you tired of those annoying compressed MP3 files that sound like they're drowning underwater? Have you had it with cassette tapes that are always jamming up? How about those annoying compact disc cases that are always broken? We'll put all those troubles in the trash. It's time to get back to basics with vinyl records. Yes, vinyl records are back and they're better than ever. Thanks to the Vinyl Revival Record Club. Here's just a sample of what you'll get. The Jackson 5. The Brady Bunch Kids. The Osmonds. Curtis Mayfield. The Doobie Brothers. Donnie Osmond. The Jacksons. The Partridge Family. And thrill to the sounds of Boots Randolph and his yakety sax. To get started in the Vinyl Revival Record Club, send check or money order to P.O. Box 774987, Washington, D.C., 20015. Records just $19.99. Sorry, 8-track tapes are sold out. Your satisfaction is guaranteed or your money back. This is a spoof ad. These records are really groovy, really groovy, really groovy, really groovy, really groovy. These records are really groovy.
Oh, I need some ibuprofen after having to listen to that. I'll be right back. Ah, spring is almost here. That means fishing season is just around the corner. That means dusting off the tackle box and inspecting the contents, making sure it's ready for that first big fishing trip. Time to pull out the poles and make sure the reels have plenty of line. With a stocked cooler full of your favorite beverages, you're ready to go. You bring along your favorite chair to sit in, and then you cast your line. Ah, just sitting back, relaxing, waiting for that bobber to make just the slightest movement. And then, well, that's not what I'm going to talk about today. Spring may be just around the corner, but ice fishing is still going on in several parts of the country. I've only been ice fishing one time. I was probably around seven or eight. My dad took me and my brothers for a day on the frozen lake. We had our warmest winter clothes and our thermos full of hot chocolate. It was a rather windy day and we had a hard time keeping things from blowing around. I honestly don't remember catching much that day, and I don't remember ever being afraid of being on the ice. I found it kind of fascinating. I just remember the experience of being on the frozen lake and hanging out with my dad and two brothers. My good friend Dave Reef shared his one and only ice fishing story with me. He took his young son Daniel out for a day of fun on the ice, but the fish just weren't biting. In fact, they only caught one fish all day long. Dave had carved out a spot in the ice to keep their single catch until they were ready to pack up and go home. Then, suddenly, out of nowhere, a lone seagull swooped down and snatched the fish and flew off. Ah, how frustrating. All day on the ice and nothing to show for it. But most certainly, a memory that will last forever. Thanks, Dave, for letting me share this story on the way things used to be. I'll be right back. So in this segment, I'm going to play for you a spoof commercial that I put together using a cheesy sound-alike record. It's done in the same format as those K-Tel records you used to see on TV, where they had 20 great hits on one LP. Check it out. Homestead Records presents Dancing Queen, a new blockbuster LP. 20 hit songs, but not the original stars. A band that sounds like ABBA. Someone who sounds like Manfred Mann. Fleetwood's Mac. Steve's Miller Time Band. Eagle's Nest. Bob Cigar. Glenn Campbell's Soup. Southern nights. Happy weather felt to see. 
13 more nauseating sound-alikes. Dancing Queen, 20 hit songs but not the original stars. Be sure to get the best from Homestead Records. LP 599, tapes, 8-track or cassette 699. Cassette tape recorders were used for many things in their heyday. You could use a pocket-sized one to record voice notes and take dictation. They were usually noisy and not much good for anything else. More sophisticated home stereo systems used cassettes for state-of-the-art recording and playback so you could listen to your music collection in your car or make a mixtape of your favorite songs to play anytime. The more common type of tape recorder that I used to use was a tabletop unit. They had a carrying handle, a handheld microphone with an on-off switch, and ran on C-sized batteries. This tape recorder fueled my childhood creativity and forever changed my life. It all started when my dad brought home a pocket tape recorder from work one weekend. He used it to dictate notes. He let me play with it and I recorded all sorts of things like my family sitting at the table eating dinner and sounds from television shows. I would even record music from my record player and read comic books into the microphone. It was fun to play the tape back and hear it just as I recorded it, but my voice sounded a little strange. And the reason for that is because the way you hear your voice is through your ear canals, so it sounds different when it comes out of a speaker. I even created my own sound effects for my adventures. I had quite a creative imagination. This was such a fun thing and I had a lot of plans for that little pocket tape recorder. But then, the weekend was over and Dad had to take the tape recorder back to work. I was sad and wished I had my own to play with. It wasn't long after that that Dad bought a very nice high-end Bell & Howell cassette recorder. It was in a leather case, had big blue click buttons and a handheld microphone that I could turn the tape on and off with. I even had my own cassette tape that I could keep. I was a very popular kid in the second grade when I brought the tape recorder to class and let all the kids record their voices. I walked up to each one of them and let them see their names, and then I played it back for them. I think it was during show and tell. I don't really know what my dad used the tape recorder for, other than taking it to the county fair and recording the chickens and roosters in the poultry exhibit. Oh yeah, one time we took it to the movies and tried to record the sound from Star Wars back in 1977. The only problem with that was that the batteries were in backwards. Once Dad realized what the problem was, he promptly took it out to the lobby in front of everyone and fumbled with them until he got it working again. Unfortunately, we missed all but the last 13 minutes of the movie. When I think back at it now, I'm surprised we didn't get kicked out of the theater. Cassettes had their share of problems as well, like getting tangled in the machine. Once I used a pencil to get the tape back into a cassette, there would always be a bad spot and it sounded awful because it was wrinkled. Occasionally, I would be bold and repair the damage by cutting it out with a pair of scissors and using scotch tape to put it back together. This kind of problem typically happened with cheap cassettes because I couldn't afford nicer ones. I remember one time I went to Woolworth Woolco to buy a three-pack of tapes for 99 cents. There were a couple of kids about my age in the checkout just in front of me and they laughed when they saw me holding the cheap cassettes. Embarrassed, I wanted to leave the store without them, but I knew I would do creative things with those budget-minded tapes. As I got older, I was able to afford better tapes and a nicer component stereo tape deck. The recordings got better over time and I started making tapes for my Sparkomatic car stereo. Sadly, all of this would change with the introduction of the compact disc in the mid-1980s. I was now buying music on CD instead of cassette. High-end cassettes were still good for recording mixtapes for the car, but the source was now a CD and not a dub from another cassette. Everything went downhill for cassettes when recordable CDs came onto the scene, and I swooped it up quickly. 
cassettes were soon left on the shelf to collect dust. Today, I still have some of those old cassettes that I recorded as a kid, mainly for the nostalgia because they have already been digitally recorded and stored on a computer hard drive. Some of them I just can't let go of, like that first cassette that sparked my imagination when I was just eight years old. Washington, D.C. is an amazing place to visit. Whether you're a Republican, Democrat, Independent, or don't care about politics, it has something for everyone. I had the privilege of living near the area back in the mid-1970s. We lived in Dale City, Virginia, and my dad worked in a federal building in downtown D.C. My mom would drop him off at the bus stop and he would commute to work every day. Dad told me about a very important person that was visiting his building one day. None other than President Jimmy Carter and his entourage of Secret Service agents. Everyone was lined up to see the president up close, and he shook their hands, including my dad's. As the president and his bodyguards got onto the elevator, my dad shouted, Give him heck, Jimmy! And the president replied, I will! As the door shut. That was an exciting experience for my dad, and it would not be the last time he would encounter the president. The next time was a ceremony on the White House lawn with Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, and it was by invitation only. But the invitation included families as well. Dad said that the security was very low-key for an event like that. They merely checked handbags for weapons. Nowhere near what would take place today with bomb-sniffing dogs, metal detectors, and facial recognition technology. When the ceremony was over, the President and his guest greeted the people, shaking some hands but mostly just smiling and waving. I remember being so close to the president that I realized how short he was and how gray his hair was compared to on TV. Quite a unique experience for a 10-year-old kid. Sadly, Anwar Sadat was assassinated five years later in his own country during a parade. I also had the privilege of touring the inside of the White House two different times. I don't remember much about the security as far as that goes, but I do remember not being so impressed with the tour. I actually found it quite boring. I had another encounter with a president, George H.W. Bush, some years later. In the summer of 1992, myself and my good friends Steve and Greg Wright took a trip to Washington, D.C. I flew from Michigan down to Florida, where they lived, and then we hopped into Steve's very compact Toyota Tercel and made the trip up the East Coast. While in Washington, we explored the museums and the historical sites like Ford's Theater, the Washington Monument, and the National Aquarium. We did everything on foot, which I think made it easier to get around because we didn't have to battle with traffic or parking. This was also pre-9-11 times, so the security was nowhere near what it would be today. To get into places, you pretty much just stood in line and waited. In the course of one day, we saw the presidential motorcade three different times. The first encounter was the best because the entire entourage of police cars, motorcycles, and limos crossed right in front of us while we were standing at an intersection. Of course, we couldn't see the president because the windows were blacked out, but it was pretty impressive nonetheless. We saw the motorcade again a little later in the day, about a half a block away, and one final time not far from the White House. The best part of the day was watching the presidential helicopter, Marine One, take off from the White House lawn and fly right over us. Being a video guy, I had my trusty over-the-shoulder Magnavox VHS camcorder rolling tape for the event. We felt the breeze of the chopper's blades as it flew over. What a great capper to a beautiful sunny day in D.C.
Welcome back to The Way Things Used to Be. Yeah, I tried my hand at being a DJ, um, not really professionally, but in high school for two years, we had a school radio station. The station broadcast on back channels on the cable system, so people could listen to it, but they had to have their TV on. The following is snippets of recordings I made during this time. They were on big reel-to-reel tapes, and I transferred them down to cassette and eventually to a CD. Try not to cringe too much when you hear it. And by the way, many times on this podcast, I mentioned my good friend Steve Wright. Well, we've been good friends for over 40 years now, and we did go through high school together, and he's also on some of these clips that you're about to hear. And this is WHBS. My name is Don Williams. And I'm Steve Wright. And we're going to be rocking you for the next hour and a half. If you have any songs that you'd like me to play, the request line is 887-3053. And let's take it, Don. And the time is 1.10. Request lines are open. We've only had one request so far, and that is, and our line is 887-3053. This is WHBS. I'm Don Williams. And I'm Steve Wright. We're about to leave you now, but we're not going to leave you empty-handed. We're going to play a little live. You know who. <laughs> a little live you know who i totally forgot the name of the band that i was playing the song from it was actually the band rainbow i was definitely not cut out to be a dj for sure in my last two years of high school i took a television and radio production class one of the big things that we had to do was learn how to cue up music on a turntable and have it play at just the right time I'm going to close this segment out with a song from a record that we used so many times to cue up that there was cue burn on it, and it was really, really bad. This is, of course, a recreated recording, but I pretty much nailed it, and this is what it sounded like. Hello everyone and welcome to this special edition of The Way Things Used to Be. In my last episode, I talked about calling into a radio station and winning a contest by answering a trivia question. At the time I recorded the podcast, I was bummed because I couldn't find the original recording. But now, after much searching around, I found the tape. And that's what I'm going to play for you right now. This is the original recording from 1987 of me calling into a radio station and answering a Star Trek trivia question. Take a listen. 622, and let me go to the phone, see if I can get uh, a winner here this morning for Star Trek Trivia. Two to beam up, Scotty. Want to find out what William Shatner's middle name is. First of all, who is this on the phone? John Williams. John Williams, good. What is uh, Captain Kirk's middle name? Tiberius. That's right. (laughs) T for Tiberius. Yeah. In fact, uh, Bill Shatner has his birthday today. I forget, I forget how you, uh, let's see here, let me, I don't see it here. I'll check it with the birthdays in about 15, 20 minutes. Okay. Have you been keeping track of the uh, new Star Trek show? Definitely, I tape it every week. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's great. That's a good show. Yeah, I think it's getting as good as the old ones. Look, the, first, the first episode I didn't think was that great, but uh, it's been getting better. Yeah, th- th- this last weekend I think it was probably the best, uh, best one they've had so far. Sure has. Yeah. How about... Dinner for two at Chef Italia Restaurant. Springsteen and also for the Tahiti vacation. Oh, that's great. Well, I can honestly say the Italian food was great, but I didn't get the Tahiti vacation. What a bummer. For those of you who are curious about who that DJ was, his name was Rich Michaels, and he was on a radio station called WVIC, and it was at 94.9 on the FM dial in Lansing, Michigan. 
Thanks for listening to this special bonus edition of The Way Things Used to Be. I'll talk to you next week. I worked weekends at a convenience store when I was a junior in high school. After I graduated, I went to full-time, working the night shift. Not really what I wanted to do, but it was better than being unemployed. Here's a story about my first pay raise from the pages of my book, Night Shift, The Adventures of a Convenience Store Clerk. There was a lot of hard work involved in running a convenience store at night. I was practically putting my life on the line every night to ensure that the customer who walked into the store had a good experience. It was time for my first performance review and I was delighted when I got the phone call from my manager, Henry. It was my day off and I lived just around the corner from the store. So I hopped on my trusty Yamaha and got right over there. The manager's office was a converted restroom that was very cramped. It was so small there wasn't even room for a chair. Instead, Henry and I sat on plastic milk crates as he delivered the good news about my raise. Before I continue, here's a quick background about Henry. He was the store manager. He was short. He had quite a temper and always had to be in control at all times. In fact, he kept a plastic baseball bat and liked to pull it out from under the counter now and then either to get your attention or to scare away the kids that were loitering around the candy aisle. Don, Henry said, you've been doing a good job since you started. You have some areas to improve on, but overall you're doing a good job. Okay, hold it right there. If I was doing such a good job, he had a strange way of showing it. It seemed like everything I did wasn't good enough for him and we butted heads on several occasions. Nonetheless, I held my breath as I waited for the next words to come out of his mouth. I was going to get a dollar an hour raise. That would put me right up there with someone flipping burgers at McDonald's. Henry continued. So, I'm proud to say you're getting a nickel raise. If I had been chewing on a Big Mac at that moment, I would have bit my tongue. I waited for the rest of it, but there was no more rest of it. All I heard was the sound of crickets coming from the dark corners of the old converted restroom. A nickel raise was all I was going to get? It came out to about a $2 increase on my weekly paycheck. I was called in on my day off and given a great review, but it was only worth five cents. I must say that I worked hard for that nickel. I struggled to stay awake all night. I mopped a lot of floors, straightened a bunch of shelves, and swept up piles of cigarette butts from the parking lot, all for that coin bearing the image of Thomas Jefferson. Other raises came during my years at the store, but none were as memorable as that one. I actually had thoughts of grabbing Henry's plastic baseball bat and smashing out the headlights on his car. Hmm, I wonder where that idea came from. I don't think it would have done much damage anyway. I once received a Christmas bonus while I was working at the store, a whopping 15 bucks. That came out to about $13.50 after taxes. Yeah, even the Christmas bonus had taxes taken out of it. And I honestly don't remember ever receiving another bonus after that. One night, after a big rush of customers finally cleared out of the store, I found a $20 bill while I was sweeping. It must have fallen out of somebody's pocket at some point. I hung on to it until the next day, just to make sure that it didn't come out of my till by mistake. And trust me, if my till had been off by 11 cents, I would have gotten a phone call. But the phone call never came. So I rushed to the video store and bought another episode of Star Trek on Beta, and I had enough left over to go to McDonald's. Whoopee! I spoke to my buddy Steve Wright about this very topic. Here's what he had to say. My first reaction to your raise, five cents an hour, even back then was, boy, this is all you get for hard work. He went on to say, 
I was making less than four bucks an hour as late as 1988. Chicken feed. I remember feeling like if someone in my job zone, cashier or table wiper, got five dollars an hour, you could really go places. Ha! Thanks a lot, Steve, for your insight on that. I'll be right back. Seatbelts first appeared in 1885 to prevent someone from being ejected from a horse-drawn carriage. I can't imagine what they consisted of. Perhaps a rope with square knots? In 1963, legislation was passed requiring seatbelts to be installed in all cars in the United States. They started out as lap belts only. Shoulder belts would come later. By 1984, it was law in 48 states that seatbelt usage was required. Now all states have this law in place and you can face quite a stiff fine if you're pulled over without wearing one. When I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, we didn't think much about wearing seatbelts. We often played in the car either on the floor or in the back seat. We had a 1973 Volkswagen van that had third row seating. Pretty cool at the time, but not very practical for long trips. My dad made a flatbed platform that fit where the center seats were normally located. It was held up by table legs and we shoved all of our luggage underneath it when we went on vacations. Mom gave a sleeping bag so we boys could stretch out on the platform for long rides. No thought or concern about being tossed around in an accident. We had many fun memorable vacations with that setup in the van. Dad had a rather unique seat restraint whenever someone rode in the front passenger seat. His right arm would extend out and hold the passenger in place if he had to suddenly apply the brakes. In theory, it looked good, but I can't imagine what would have happened if we had had a front-end collision. My first car, a 1969 Catalina, had both lap belts and seat belts, but you had the option to disconnect the shoulder belt from the lap belt. I did this most of the time not realizing I could literally be cut in half if I had an accident. You just didn't think about stuff like that when you were cruising around experiencing your independence from driving your parents' car. Plus, those early shoulder belts were very difficult to adjust and often you felt choked by them. Some cars had an annoying buzzer that sounded until you fastened the belt. One way to eliminate that was to connect the lap belt and tuck it between the seat cushions. My wife Stephanie remembers laying on the back deck behind the rear window of her parents' car when she was young. She also remembers riding in a station wagon with a rear-facing back seat. She and her friends would make faces at people in the cars behind them, and they would do the hand gesture for truckers to blow their air horns. I wonder if those rear-facing seats had belts. There also weren't any airbags in those days. So, if you were in a head-on collision, you would most likely get seriously injured by the steering wheel, or perhaps have a permanent Pontiac logo embedded on your forehead. If you go on YouTube and watch videos of crash test dummies getting obliterated, it might make you think differently about skipping the seatbelt. I had a small car back in the early 1990s that had shoulder straps built into the door. It seemed like a good design, and the belt was comfortable. However, there was the possibility of people actually being ejected from the car if the doors flung open during a crash. These seatbelts were phased out by 1993, for obvious reasons. And those old boat cars that were built like tanks back in the old days, they weren't that safe. I recently watched a video of a 2009 Chevy Malibu and a 1959 Bel Air crashing head-on. Although the cars were obliterated, the driver in the 2009 Malibu most likely would have survived the crash, while the person in the 59 Bel Air would have been taken out in a body bag because the engine would have been pushed up through the firewall into the driver. Yikes! 
I never thought about things like that when I had my 69 Catalina. The engineering behind unibody construction was a real game changer for sure. While we're on the topic of riding in a vehicle without restraints, how many of you rode in the back of a pickup truck? How about sitting on the tailgate with your feet dangling while the truck went down the road? Yes, it was dangerous, and yes, I did it. My Uncle Jim had a farm in northern lower Michigan in a town called Music. When we were kids, we would drive from Lansing to visit Grandma. We couldn't wait to visit our cousins, Deb, Bill, Jimmy, and Kevin, out on the farm. It was fun messing around in the barn and doing things that we couldn't do back home, like riding horses in the summer and snowmobiles in the winter. I only remember riding in the back of the truck one time, but it was something I will never forget. We kids packed into the back of the truck with the tailgate down, and Uncle Jim took us for a ride down the road. I can remember barely being able to touch the tips of my shoes on the pavement while we sailed along down the road, wearing the rubber soles off of my shoes. I'm glad we didn't entertain the thought of pushing each other off the back of the truck for kicks. If kids were to ride in the back of a truck today like we did when I was young, they probably would take the driver into custody and call Child Protective Services for child endangerment. Well, I'm glad nobody went to jail or got shoved out of the truck. We survived those simpler days of our youth and we're alive today to tell about it. I'll be right back. Hello and welcome to this bonus edition of The Way Things Used to Be. I'm your host, Don Williams. Let's play a little guessing game. I have a handheld game here from the 1970s. I'll play some sound clips from it, and you'll need to guess what game it is. After that's been determined, I'll tell you all about it. Have you figured it out yet? Here's a couple more sounds. Okay, well, here it is. If you guessed Merlin, the electronic wizard, you were correct. Here's what Wikipedia has to say about that game. Merlin, the electronic wizard, is a handheld game first made by Parker Brothers in 1978. The game was invented by former NASA employee Bob Doyle and his wife Holly, and brother-in-law Wendell Thomas. Merlin is notable as one of the earliest, most popular handheld games, selling over 5 million units during its initial run, as well as the most long-lived, remaining popular through the 1980s. A newer version came out in 2004 by Milton Bradley Company. I grew up with the original Merlin game. Somewhere along the way that game got lost, and back in 2004 when they recreated the new one, I was at a Toys R Us and I snatched it up really quick just for the nostalgia. It plays pretty much like the old one, with a little bit of difference. It still plays the same six games, which are Tic-Tac-Toe, Music Machine, Echo, a game similar to Simon, Blackjack 13, Magic Square, it's like a pattern game, similar to Lights Out, and Mindbender, a game similar to Mastermind. These are the same six games who played on the original Merlin. The difference between the original one and the recreated one in 2004, for one, the newer version, the game is a lot smaller. The handheld portion of the game is much smaller. And the buttons are different. On the original game, you had like a membrane button that you really kind of had to put some pressure on to make the buttons work. The newer game has rubber buttons that are easy to push. The 2004 version of the game takes three AAA batteries, whereas the original 1978 version took six AA batteries. Quite a difference in size there. The newer game talks to you as well. I am. 
older version of the game didn't talk at all. So whether you're playing the classic original game from 1978, or you're playing the 2004 retro version, it's fun. It brings back a lot of memories, especially for me, because I grew up with that game. Check out this television commercial from 1980 for the Merlin handheld game. Merlin's a game that you can play. You can play it six different ways. Some like to play at tic-tac-toe. Others can test their skill at echo. Some play a tune on Music Machine or try to play Blackjack 13. Merlin is six electronic games in one. It's really fun for most everyone in the family. Six pen light batteries not included. With lights and sounds. Six games in one. Merlin's a game that's lots of fun. Merlin, six electronic games in one. From Parker Brothers. Thanks for checking out the special bonus edition of The Way Things Used to Be. I know it was short, but it was a lot of fun, and that Merlin game sure brings back a lot of memories for me. If you have any ideas for a future podcast, I'd certainly like to hear from you. Please feel free to email me at donald9360 at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. God bless.